You're listening to the Gonzo Star Wars Specials. I'm Alex Shaw. Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. Or Fool Me Twice. This is the second of a series of six episodes, each dealing with a Star Wars film. Last week we did The Phantom Menace, which you will almost certainly have already heard. If not, go listen. Joining me once more are my regular co-host Neil Taylor from Gameburst. Hello. And our guest this week is once again Gary Zantiriad Blower from the Ninja Fat Pigeons. Hello again. It's lovely to see you guys back for more. With gluttons for punishment, really. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the right phrase, definitely. Punishment. Once again, I will occasionally be citing some very inspirational reviews by Red Letter Media and the host character of Plinkit. Do go and watch these on YouTube or their website. So to start us off, a conundrum that has no easy answer. What order will you show your kids the Star Wars saga? I don't have kids, but I'm guessing I'll go in the order of four, five, six, because they're the only ones that will truly exist. Are you not even going to show them one, two, and three, ever? No, no, just out of fear. What about one, two, and three, Daddy? Um... They were okay, but I don't have them in my collection. <laughs> well, can you rent them? Can, can we can we borrow them? No, they're out of print and no longer exist. Look, Dad, Billy gave me the episodes one to three. He said I could have them. Uh, you know, could we watch them? <laughs> I think that's a, there's a clue in the title there, in giving them you to have is keep. <laughs> no, actually, the worst thing is I will actually say this, and if she ever listens to this episode, and she will, she will kill me. Go ask your mother, because my girlfriend does quite like the originals. Uh-huh. She doesn't hate them dispassionately, but she's getting there, thanks to these shows, strangely enough. Oh, nice. Come on, Zan, what, what order are you going to show yours? I think I'd have to show them probably in chronological order, because it would just be too difficult to explain to my daughter the concept of prequels. I just, I can't work out how I'd explain How old's your daughter again? Well, she's only 16 months old, right. now, so she can just about tell the difference between a cow and a sheep. But Show, them the, show her the first three now. It'll be fine. She won't remember. She could probably still act better than Hayden Christensen. So, you know, uh, so when are you going to um, show her the them in chronological order? How long are you going to wait? It's going to be a couple of years away, I should think. The trouble is, when you talk about showing them to kids, uh, the, the the joke from Eddie Izzard pops into my head where he just turns around and goes, "He's fucking with us numerically." <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. So here's my order: Episode four because it's perfect. It sets up the whole universe. No small child who watches Star Wars doesn't like Star Wars. Episode 5, because it's even better. Episode 1, because when it finishes Empire and it's like, no, I am your father. If I've managed to keep that a secret for all these years, then she'll be like, wow, that's brilliant. So what does that mean then? And so I'll go, right, well, funny you should ask. Let's go all the way back to episode 1. Skip Jedi till later. Uh, Show her episode 1. She won't enjoy that much. Show her episode 2. She won't enjoy that much either. Show episode three, she'll be scared out of her wits because it's 12 and she really shouldn't be seeing it at that age, but you kind of have to. Um, so, I mean, I, well, I'm going to have to assess it whether she can deal with the kind of the, the bad shit that goes down in that one. So then by the end of that, she'll almost hate Star Wars. And I'll be like, no, 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 it's okay because you don't have to like those ones. And then we'll finish it off with Jedi and she can watch Vader chuck Palpatine down the shaft and it all ends properly. You've got it all worked out. Yep. It's kind but of I'm scary sure. how much thought he's put into this. <laughs> I know. This is I'm way before she was even born. It's going to raise more questions than it answers, I think. Just going to confuse the hell out of her, would have thought. Well, whereas 
watching one through three in without watching any of four, five, or six is not going to confuse the hell out of her. Well, yeah, good point. <laughs> she's going to be bored to tears. There's going to be no <laughs> reason gonna... for her to carry on. She's going to say, Dad, I don't want to watch episode three. Those first two were shit. And you're going to be like, well, three's not quite as bad, or maybe it's worse. I don't know. I think you said that it was worse, worse yeah. So maybe it's just going to be down and down and down, and then by the time she goes to Star Wars, she's going to hate the whole series. You'll have ruined it for her. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to do any of those things. I'm going to play Lego Star Wars with her. That's the best way of experiencing Star Wars. Indeed. And it lets you kill Jar Jar Binks repeatedly. Over and over again. Absolutely. You can rip his arms out of their sockets if you're chewy. I'll tell you what, I mean, mine's a few months older than yours, so basically I can tell you how it went, and you uh, you can learn from my mistakes. Yeah, I shall need Star Wars parenting tips, that's for sure. Yeah, so if if you can make the mistakes first, that saves me doing well, it. Well, see, later. mine loves Samurai Jack now already, so I think Clone Wars I'll be all right with. Oh, God. <laughs> Clone Wars, not, not the, the Clone, Clone Wars. Wars. <laughs> oh, okay, right. Yeah, I'll get confused. Yeah. Clone Wars, okay. Okay. A word on the repeatedly bungled attempts on Senator Amidala's life. The economy of Star Wars, and specifically Coruscant, appears to be entirely based on subcontracting. Sidious wants Amidala dead because she's speaking out against his regime, but he doesn't want it linking back to him, so he asks Dooku to do it. Dooku's too busy haggling with separatists, so he asks Jango Fett to do it. Jango would probably be the perfect guy for the job, since even though he's a bounty hunter, not an assassin, he can get the job done. For no reason whatsoever, aside from starting a paper trail, he hires Zam Wessel, a shape-shifting assassin to do the job now zam appears to be good with a rifle so naturally she sets up explosives to take out amidala but only scores her decoy Django gets jittery and orders zam to finish the job but still she doesn't use her sniper rifle why not there are a thousand windows on coruscant within sniping range of amidala's bedroom in the ensuing panic as they try to pick up the pieces of her skull the jedi won't know where to look and you can actually shape shift and change your appearance for safety and calmly disappear inside the building you're in leaving via the ground floor never to be heard of again good idea no far better to use a remote controlled probe droid with two deadly centipedes in it and then when you get rumbled and this bizarre contract kill by way of a Bond movie from the 70s is blown wide open don't try to get the probe droid back leave it in fact blow it up and create more chaos so they go after her and a really dull speeder chase ensues it's like Lucas and Luke Besson both saw Blade Runner and figured that they could make a city of flying cars an exciting location for an aerial chase Besson succeeded five years previously in the fifth element and Lucas just looks like he's copying him the Jedi are customer calm throughout and while that may translate as cool on paper it just makes the scene feel unreal and entirely lacking in danger or substance they find Zam in a cantina after she tries to kill one of them and in the most cliched manner she gets shot before she can give him a valuable piece of information since she has no allegiance to her killer she should simply have said in her dying breath Django Fett go get that bastard but of course she doesn't so rather than finishing the job himself in the Jedi's absence and killing Amidala Django goes back to Dooku leaving Amidala still alive Dooku goes back to Sidious empty-handed and Sidious can't be bothered to start the chain again so the movie goes on. Imagine how much money was wasted down that line. And the best bit I'm going to do now is really mean to you but it wasn't Sidious that wanted Amidala dead. Uh, Who was it? It was Newt Gunray. Really? Newt Gunray, in order to join the separatists, wanted Amidala's head. Dooku says he'll make that happen. Dooku hires Boba, Boba hires Zam and 
that's where it was. You're right. Oh, no, he hires, he hires Django. He might have hired Boba, but... <laughs> he, he hired Django. <laughs> okay, you're facts. right. That makes much more sense. Wouldn't <laughs> <laughs> it, it not have been perfect. easier, clearer, or more effective for Newt Gunray to just send Django Fett? Yes. The whole plot of Attack of the Clones is a mashup of a convoluted 1940s detective serial thrown in with a stomach-turningly mishandled Mills and Boone romance novel. It's totally different from any other Star Wars movie as a result. And when you first see it, it feels like it's there's this huge mystery which has to be discovered. But of course, there isn't. The villain is Palpatine, same as in The Phantom Menace. And the heroes come away none the wiser, leaving the audience wondering if they're just stupid. The funny thing is, when Obi-Wan is captured, there's a conversation between Dooku and Obi-Wan. Uh. This is before we realise, you know, and I'll get past the obvious signposting of this, but uh, when Dooku says to him that the Sith Lord, or the Dark Lord, is in charge of the Senate. Big-ass clue! In charge of Senate! Could we make it more obvious for you? He is in charge of the Senate. Aye, it's Palpatine! It's Palpatine! <laughs> no, you're right, he does. I think I may have been asleep at that point. To defend it slightly, there Go is... For it. <laughs> there is a... A convoluted mystery that's generated to give the film uh, a base narrative, which, you know, of the three prequels, this is the only one that actually has a, a proper base narrative to it. In that something happens at the beginning, the middle of the film is investigating why that happened and who did it, and then there's some kind of payoff at the end. So it does, you know, in its rawest sense, actually have a narrative structure, unlike the first one and the third one. So. And the, and really the 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 whole the whole premise of the film rests on that little dart. I mean that is the MacGuffin that drives the entire story basically. The Camino dart. The Camino dart, yeah, because that then leads you into the discovery of Camino. It leads you into the discovery of the clone army. It leads you into the discovery of Geonosis. 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 Leads you into the discovery of Dooku, who's who's the new kind of uh, second Sith. So it, that little tiny dart. Is the thing that drives the whole plot. It's the MacGuffin. Um, yeah. It's the MacGuffin. And the whole reason that you have this um, bounty hunter hiring a bounty hunter is just so that you can introduce an element of mystery to that, so that you know, you've know you broken the link between the uh, initial criminal and this convoluted subplot that's going on in parallel with it. So in that respect, it kind of works as a film. Uh, First time or, or repeated viewings? Repeated viewings, yeah. I mean, I, I, when I watched it again, I, you know, this is one of the ones that I actually got, you know, I actually enjoyed watching it, believe it or not. Um, well, most of it. We'll get to the bits that I just want to kill myself whenever I see. But <laughs> was it worse than? Fan- um, no, sorry, is it better than Phantom Menace? For you? Yes. Yes. This Both for me it? is probably the third best film for me. Well, as it so, out of the whole saga, uh, the whole six, this is the third best. I would say. Yeah. Wow. You'd put I, this I above think, Jedi? Yeah, you'll be surprised how low I rate Jedi. I think it's Bilge. Wow. Whoa. Okay. It's my most my wife's favourite. That's when that was when Lucas raised the flag and said, This is what an idiot I am. You know, that's all the things that he did in the prequels. He did he went for he went to town on in Jedi. Well, I did notice uh, uh, that certain telltale signs when I saw Jedi again recently, but uh, I, yeah. I, I I still really, really like Jedi and compa- compared to clones, it's Citizen Kane to me. 
for me, it's hard to assess which is technically worse because I hate both these films. Phantom Menace feels slower pace and more boring to me, possibly because I've seen it more often. But Attack of the Clones seems more nonsensical, a great deal less visceral as well on account of the over-reliance on blue screen instead of sets, and a whole lot more annoying because of Hayden Christensen. When it boils down, it's an emotional response from me. The Phantom Menace, I forgave its flaws at first by volition of that it was another Star Wars movie at long, long last, and the first one I ever saw in the cinema, for the first time at least. Uh, but then on repeated viewings, the rot began to set in. I was really hoping and praying that by the follow-up, the series would have reclaimed some of its former pacing and emotion, and Lucas would have listened to his detractors and relied less heavily on the dull, plodding politics of Phantom Menace. And to a degree, he did. Jar Jar is only there in a minor role, and a lot of the exposition has been replaced by action. But the plot is arguably even worse, with unwarranted melodrama right in the middle, when it needs to be accelerated and a shed load of unanswered questions when what we want is answers. Also, Lord of the Rings had already come out at that point, and it set the bar so high, I was like, you know what, fuck Star Wars. Now, the presence of kids in the Jedi Order raises some pretty pertinent questions with some disturbing conclusions. Uh, Plinkett mentions this, and I have been thinking hard about it since 1999. Okay, here's a healthy alternate version of the Jedi Temple. Kids who are Force-sensitive are found as soon as the Jedi are aware of them. They are then left to grow up and become regular people in the knowledge that there is a place for them at the Jedi Temple once they come of age, and if they choose it kind of like Hogwarts or Charles Xavier's Academy. Once they hit 16, they can journey to Coruscant, enroll, and train to be a Jedi. If they choose not to, they may simply live their normal lives as they would have without the temple. But if they feel that they could accomplish more at any point, or if they feel unresolved, and they can enroll as mature students. Whether they're Jedi or not, they will be free to have relationships, marriage, and family, though advised to some degree that this may cause them difficulty or conflict later on, as it obviously would if one wishes to devote oneself to a higher calling. That is not the way of things in Lucas's universe. Get this. In Lucas's Jedi Temple, they seek out babies who have a high midi-chlorian count and tell the parents that the child must come to the academy around the age of six. At six years old, the average child is into custard and jumping, and not all that psychologically ready to be wrenched away from their parents and put in a special school, told they have incredible powers and, crucially, have a monk-like, sexless and emotionless lifestyle forced onto them. Then they can be used by the Jedi Council to further their cause, protect their territory and political interests, and be sent out to settle trade disputes with Fu Manchu aliens when they are of the appropriate age. When you think about it, the Jedi Temple is actually a creepy child-abducting cult given full license to practice by the ruling body of the Senate. The notion of free will is non-existent. A person's dedication is not earned but enforced, and clearly, as we mentioned last week, they have no real backup plan for kids that scare them with their sheer potential. They just cast you out. By all means, if an adult feels a higher calling and wishes to give up the trappings of their regular existence in favour of following the way of the Force, they should be allowed. But would you let a Southern Baptist take your toddler away because they have a computer readout proclaiming that God wants your kids for lifelong servitude to the tune of 10,000 midichlorians per cell and if you did, is it not the tiniest bit possible that sometime in their teens, one or two of these kids is going to get just a little fucked up when they realise that they've been exploited by a stagnant body of religious whack jobs it doesn't matter in the slightest that the force is proven to exist, coercing preschoolers into giving up their entire lives for it is ethically speaking in the gutter 
Lucas's naivety regarding what this would do to a person throughout their life and the specific barring of a person from the concept of love comes off as shockingly misguided. The history of the Jedi would be strewn with cover-ups and scandals as some of them would seek clandestine relationships, some just straight-out sex, and some, cracking under the strain of guilt and desperation not to be like the Sith, would probably find themselves in a rather more unpleasant predicament. They're not allowed to hate, or love, or fear, or fuck, or be angry, or earn money, or marry, or divorce, or experience anything else that makes a person human and relatable. Yet the whole galaxy is presented with these calm, controlled, holy men and women to mediate on disputes that involve all of these things. The perspective granted to them by never coming to terms with these feelings would only, and could only, rob them of any sense of self, so they'd be detached and emotionless and no good at all for their sole intended task. If you loved the issue-solving and diplomacy in Knights of the Old Republic or Mass Effect, imagine having to make those decisions based not on your own experience, but on witnessing those of others and extrapolating lines of most likely scenarios. Then you might be able to see what cold, twisted creations Lucas has carved out here. Back when we were younger and had only the original trilogy, Jedi were fascinating because they seemed wiser than all the other squabbling denizens of the Star Wars universe. Back then we had Obi-Wan and Yoda for comparison, old men who clearly had seen a lot of things come to pass. Now with the prequels we get to see weird aliens played by models and jobbing actors and CGI, all equally stiff as boards and expressionless, all mostly there because there needed to be a lot of Jedi. Not a spark of actual wisdom between them, and as the lore of the Jedi became clearer and the actual practices became more suspect. So now I don't want to be a Jedi anymore and I'll have to put something else on the census forms. Well, none of us by the end of it wants... You see, the <laughs> thing about being a Jedi is when you're a little kid, you want to be a Jedi, right? Yeah. You know, when you're old enough, you finally realise, fuck being a Jedi, <laughs> I want to be Han Solo. <laughs> you want to be the smuggler. They're cooler. And that's a very creepy way of describing the Jedi Order, but so creepy because you kind of see that point. They're taking kids away without giving them the life perspective. So you, you send these guys off to trade negotiations or whatever they have no life experiences how does this help them apart from they know how to wave a lightsaber and use the force when did this celibacy thing come in because i don't remember it in the oh, it was no. that's the thing it wasn't in the original trilogy no. i think he just threw it in there as adversity to make it more like romeo and juliet sort of oh no you're not allowed to love no can i just have a warning here expanded universe thing in the future <laughs> jedi order that's not applicable either they don't do that Oh, no, you know, because Luke marries Mara Jade. There is Ben Skywalker, there's Jacob, is it Jacob? Jason and Jane are Solo. So, yeah, of course, Leia marries Anne, she's a Jedi. And Anakin Solo as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this doesn't, makes no sense. All of that happens before the prequels, in terms of, like, relationships and stuff, and obviously George doesn't have to follow that. How would you pass, because they, because doesn't, um, in the first, in The Phantom Menace, doesn't, uh, What's his name? Um, Liam Neeson. Quagum. Yeah, Quagum, thank you. Doesn't he say that, um, that, the, that the ability to use the force is passed on through the generations? But if you can't have sex, then how is that passed on through the generations? I can only imagine arranged like couplings between Jedis. I mean, that's even worse! He, he introduces things without actually... I don't think, considering what the impact is of... Take her now, you will! She is right! Stop it! On his... <laughs> He, he, he never, he, you know, he introduces things without ever considering really how they relate to things he's already set up. You know, because I mean, there's huge numbers of continuity flaws in in Phantom Menace. This just, to me, seems like another one, and it's only really been added in order to create this friction between, mm. um, you know, Anakin's job, if you like, as a, a as a 
as a Padawan and and his and his lust for 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 Padme. You know. It, it, also, Amidala's like, like I'm a senator. I can't. So what now? Senators can't get married. Senators can't have families. Do they want everyone in any position of power to be basically totally d- distant from the human race and to not know love? So what do you think of the character of Anakin in episode two? Can we please slap it <laughs> hard? I don't know whether it's the character or the actor. I mean, the character writing isn't particularly brilliant, but the actor's not there either. Mm. He, he spends most of the uh, movie acting like a petulant child, mm. forever blaming everyone but himself. He, he spends most of his time whining about Obi-Wan Kenobi holding him back. The instant that he comes on the screen in this film, it, it, I just want to kill him. <laughs> He's just the most. He's just an irritating fucker, basically. He's just the most. You know, it's one of these people that you meet them and you take an instant dislike to. And I, I don't know where. Obviously, it probably was intentional, but it's it's over the top. I mean, what would have been better would have been if he was all smiles and and uh, friendly and banter with um, Obi Wan, but then behind his back he was, you know, being manipulative and malevolent and stuff. Because that's more the kind of Sith way of doing things, isn't it? It's, mm. But he's yeah. not a Sith at this point. But he's being groomed, isn't he? <laughs> For want of a better word. By, I'd have liked to see um, that more than what we actually got. Palpatine. <laughs> but, you know, and if, if Palpatine is influencing him, then that's what he's going to influence him to do. He's going he's gonna to be telling him, you know, you need to do as you're told. You need to be with smiles and, you know, look like the good Jedi. But behind the scenes, I'm going to make you even more powerful than them. But, you, you know, you need to keep it quiet. You need to keep it, you need to, you know, it needs to I be could, a secret. I could. I could argue the case that there is some of that going on when we see them going up to uh, Padme's apartment. There's a line about the falling into the nest of Gundarks, wasn't mm-hmm. it? And he turns around smiling and smiling goes, no, Master, that was you. You fell into that nightmare, Master. I got you out. Oh, yes. That's what the and then and Obi does his little love like, <laughs> and very funny that was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I bet it was. The, the writing is so clumsy that you can never really tell whether they are friendly or whether they do hate each other it's so inconsistent mm. and and even from scene to scene it's it's clumsily done so you can't so some scenes it appears that they are pally they're just kind of like you said they kind of just sort of rub each other up the wrong way every now and then then in other scenes they, they you know um anakin seems outwardly hostile for no apparent reason it'll just suddenly fly off the handle you know look obviously he's very hormonal mm. but how can he be hormonal in this movie isn't he meant to be 18 he's meant to be n Ending that sort of hormone. Well, he hasn't been able to have sex for his entire teenage years. Has he not been able to have a wank either? Clearly not. You're not allowed to grease the old Jedi pole. If they don't (laughs) like sex, they clearly can't like wanking. Wank you must not. Oh, for God's sake. No, I would have actually, as you say, Gary, that would have been quite interesting, what you said, being like deceptive and manipulative. And to actually show his genuine character, when you realised, you know, who he actually was, you could just show him pause 
at moments when he's supposed to be manipulating and maybe yeah. not when you when you know what he's supposed to say and then have him actually not and then go although well, there is someone deep down in there i can feel the good in him and already you're on the right path or the, the wrong path if it helps you look at the the the, the other three films you know um vader quite is a classic example of that you know his his uh, Sith-like behaviour is to go against his master, to say one thing to the Emperor and then do another, you know, to look for a new apprentice so that he can replace the Emperor. You know, so that's the Sith way. Like that's how the Force Unleashed. The problems with Anakin are manifold. Lucas had to write him a little bit like Luke, but darker and angrier. Also, he's a teenager, so he's angry and whiny. Also, there's the whole forbidden romance thing, so he's needy and horny. Also, he's played by Hayden Christensen, which, while being bad enough in itself, is a totally different actor to Jake Lloyd's nine-year-old. So we have to be introduced to him all over again, and there's really not much to like. He's arrogant without being all that skillful. Everyone seems either wearied by him or scared of him, so he can't even mind some affection from other characters and probably the worst thing is his dialogue some of the most appalling lines ever written for a star wars film if not a film and delivered with witless clumsy leaden complacency by christensen now true he had an awful director and yes these were horrible lines but is there any excuse for stuff like this the closer i get to you the worse it gets the thought of not being with you i can't breathe I'm haunted by the kiss that you should never have given me. My heart is beating, hoping that that kiss will not become a scar. You are in my very soul, tormenting me. What can I do? I will do anything that you ask. Uncomfortable pause. <laughs> oh, God. oh my God! And he goes on. If you are suffering as much as I am, please tell me. I can't. We can't. It's just not possible. Anything is possible, Padme. Listen. This is a brilliant Padme line. No, you listen. We live in a real world. Come back to it. You're studying to become a Jedi. I'm... I'm a senator. If you follow your thoughts through to conclusion, it'll take us to a place we cannot go. That's the line. That's the line that kills We live in a real world. The, the thing about going to a place that we cannot go. <laughs> like the back of I a just... Volkswagen. <laughs> <laughs> the back of those gondola thingies. So it's just that, you know, in that situation, you know, when they're getting a bit frisky on the, on the old... Um, you know, tiger rug or whatever it is, tiger skin rug and stuff, you're not going to come out with such a convoluted phrase in such a weird and... It's just bizarre. It's just nobody would ever use that language in, in any situation, let alone that. It gets better. I will not let you give up your future for me. You are asking me to be rational. That is something I know I cannot do. Believe me, I wish that I could just wish away my feelings. <laughs> but I can't. Oh, oh my god. I mean, to be fair, I mean, at least in episodes four, five, and six, at least the actors in those films, uh, Harrison Ford certainly and Carrie Fisher, were good enough to know that the stuff they were being fed by Lucas was shit. And they changed them. Um, they changed lines all the time. Yeah, and they changed it. And of, and of course, famously, um, Harrison Ford turned around to Lucas, didn't he, and said, you, you can write this shit, George, but I'm not going to say it. <laughs> they ended up so, negotiating, I love you, I love you too. 
into I Love You, I Know for The Empire Strikes Back. We'll talk about that for that particular episode. But, but I, that's just a classic believe, uh, example of how they turn shit into gold. But I believe it was even in the first film, Star Wars, he, you know, he was very unhappy with uh, some of the lines that were being fed. And, and Carrie Fisher used to you know, have major strops with him. Yeah, but I think shit, Carrie Fisher also had a different problem as well at that time, but, apparently. But mm. Carrie Fisher is Carrie Fisher. But, I mean, even so, I mean, she... She knew the difference between shit and Shinola, you know, so it's, yeah, at least they turned, they were, they had the decency to make those films better yeah. by refusing to say some of these. But anybody who said that and was difficult with Lucas, he'd probably go, I'll fucking have you killed. The only one I've heard, you know, you could kind of hear these stories, but the only one I've heard refused to say some of the lines he was given was Samuel Jackson in these films. <laughs> And, uh, you know, no, that's he, you don't he does Samuel. nothing but brilliant line after brilliant line. I mean, Mace well, Windu is so quotable. <laughs> I mean, I've got this giant well, thick book of Mace Windu quotes right here. You believe it's this boy? The force is strong the, with him. Yeah, but probably originally. This party is over. He probably had a 17 minute monologue. <laughs> You know, <laughs> to say this party's over, you know, and he probably said, you know, George, let's just do this, you know. So what, how would it have been if he had been the Sith in this and if he had been really angry and shouty and like Samuel L. Jackson does? Lightsaber, when you positively have to kill, <laughs> kill, kill a motherfucker in the room. In the room. <laughs> Bottom line is that unlike Luke, we don't care about Anakin at all, which, since the trilogy is in effect all about his backstory and his fall from grace, is the absolute most important hurdle to come tumbling over forehead first. Similar stories about a generally good guy gone bad include Harvey Dent in The Dark Knight, Smeagol in Lord of the Rings, and a certain character in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. It actually doesn't happen all that often, because it's hard to write well, but when it does, the journey can be heartbreaking and powerful storytelling. Without us caring about Anakin, it's not a fall from grace, but rather a shallow decline from neutral kid to whiny, arrogant teenager to child-murdering psychopath. In fact, his character seems to have little similarity or bearing at all on that of Darth Vader. Fail of the most epic kind. The way to watch this film is to watch all the bits that have Ewan McGregor in it, and then as soon as Hayden Christensen turns up, just turn, the, turn it off. <laughs> and actually, you, you, what you end up with is a really good film. Do you rate Ewan McGregor in this one, then? He gets all the best scenes and all the best lines in this film. So um, He's really quite boring to me in this. I mean, yeah, but he gets the, the, the kind of important thing about the film... You know, the kind of, uh, like I said earlier, the key narrative is all the stuff that he does. So he kind of follows the narrative all the way through. He's the one who goes to Kamina. He's the one who goes to Genesis. Mm-hmm. He's the one who finds out about Dooku. He's the one. So all of the interesting stuff, yeah. the kind of, okay, what's going on here? You know, all the stuff you're intrigued by is all the scenes that uh, that uh, Obi-Wan is in. And then we just leave Anakin and Padme to go away and do their hormonal rubbish on in, in, in the garden planet and, and just go away and leave me alone and, and I'll catch up with you later on when you're about to be eaten by some cool-looking aliens. You know. <laughs> I could do away with all of that middle bit with those two in it. In fact, if you watch the film and skip past those bits, it's a much better film. I'll have to watch that That's cut of it. <laughs> well, isn't Dave the Phantom Menace Cup with no Jar Jar? I'm sure various bootleg versions of that exist, but... Uh, it's six minutes long. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, it just got me thinking, because um, the way to look, I was looking at it when I was watching it was the fact that what they tried to do with Padme and Anakin is they tried to set them up as almost kindred spirits. Mm-hmm. Or have uh, gone through similar things, being forced to be old beyond their years and having to responsibility beyond what they want and not actually wholly enjoying those lives that they've got. And this is why they are drawn together. But the the dialogue is so clunky. The acting is so 
clunky. It's like, I want to know what happened to Natalie Portman. She used to be a really good actor. Mm. What happened to her in these movies? They're terrible. Later on, when they're on Tatooine, and you have this bit where Anakin is going off on a rant about why he's done something he's done, you watch her reaction to what he's saying. There is nothing. Mm. It's like nothing. The lights are on, but nobody's home. When he's basically admitting to... Mass murder. It's like he, he may as well have just said, I went down to the theatre, but they were all sold out of tickets, so I shouted at the guy behind the desk, and then I came home. And she's like, to be angry is to be human. Wait, 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 hold on. Shall we have a look at Plinkett's list of Anakin's bad moves when it comes to courting Amidala? Yeah, let's oh, yes. definitely do that. Okay. Yeah. Clumsy entrance. Basically, that's where he goes, you've grown, my majesty. More beautiful, I mean. By her own words, makes her feel uncomfortable because he keeps staring at her, giving her creepy sex looks. <laughs> Bitches constantly about Obi Wan behind his back, interrupts him and is as uh, arrogant and uh, unruly in front of her, as if like he's showing off. Like, like I'm, I'm, I'm a rebel, baby. You can't tame me. Uh, talking about sand. I mean, a- any guy comes on, starts talking about how sand is and how rough it is and how it gets everywhere. I mean, the average girl's gonna be like fucking boring, but. That's the moment where she's like, oh my god, you're fucking irresistible. He comes from a planet made of sand. I mean, <laughs> he rides a pig, which is basically all ass. And that is some of the worst sort of tumbling physics of the early 21st century, when that sort of CGI Anakin gets on top of a CGI pig and then falls off onto a CGI. I mean, yeah, maybe the field's real. I don't know. It's Your brain's going, none of this is real. None of it at that point. And you just don't care. <laughs> I think the brain gave up longer ago before that. <laughs> so she makes him recite bad poetry to her, then beg for sex. And then, afterwards on Tatooine, he murders sand men, sand women, and sand children, tells her about it, tearfully, brings home a corpse, goes on a genocidal rant about how much he still hates the Tusken Raiders, continues into a megalomaniacal rant about how he should be all-powerful, and Obi-Wan is both jealous of him and holding him back, and then at the end of the film gets a creepy skeletal hand, and she marries him. Here's another fairly important one. When they're in the meadow, he talks about how he supports dictatorships. Yeah, that goes to prove that you should not talk about politics on your... Yeah, I mean, especially not with a politician. (laughs) Okay, right, here's the exact quotes on this one. Here's how it goes. We need a system where the politicians sit down and discuss the problem. Agree what's in the best interest of all the people, and then do it. That's exactly what we do. The, The trouble is that people don't always agree. Well, then they should be made to. By whom? Who's gonna make them? I don't know. Someone. You? Of course not me. But someone. Someone wise. Sounds an awful lot like a dictatorship to me. Well, if it works. It seems like to begin with she's annoyed by him, and then she starts to feel kind of sorry for him. And by the end, sort of maybe the middle end, it's like she's just giving in to his obsession. And then definitely by Sith, she's afraid of him the whole way through. And you're like, there is no actual love here. No, no. Good grief. Uh, do any of you guys... I, mean, sorry. I was going to say, all of that, I'm afraid, pales into insignificance when uh, you consider the heinousness of the scene with the piece of fruit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just cannot watch that without, you know... Just grinding my teeth and clenching my fists and thinking just how bloody awful the whole that whole scene is. You know, it, it makes me want to vomit. Not only is it gushy and saccharine and blah, everything about it is just horrible, 
but this piece of fruit has no mass. Mm. And I don't know if you noticed, but she misses with the fork. Yeah. And it, it's, and so it sort of have, lodges on the, the so, fork. So anyway. they, they have to sort of CG it to do this sort of weird sort of twill at the end of it, just so it manages to sort of impale itself on a fork with no mass. And then when she lifts it, lifts it to her lips, this sort of little bite of pear <laughs> comes off. It's a CGI bite, comes off on her tongue, <laughs> and she's like, mm, nom, nom, nom. It's like Cookie Monster eating a cookie. It's not actually happening. It's it's hardly like a couple drinking from the same cup, is it? I mean, it's just it's just awful. I just well, Ugh. it's not the scene from Lady in the Trap. No, if he had no. nudged a pear towards her with his nose, I'd have been like, yeah, fair, fair <laughs> dues. <laughs> that would have been a lot better. Yeah, <laughs> you know what annoys me about this is you know we you know we just had this big debate about these you know these handful of scenes with these you know with these two people and an awkward and awful way. Mm. And they, but ultimately, they're just a subplot. They should just be background noise to the film. But they know. dominate the movie. I know exactly. That's the flooring. It completely ruins the rest of Their the film. Their fat, expressionless faces are all over the poster, and you can't get them away. Totally unnecessary. And um, you know, in terms of his descent into, you know, becoming the apprentice and stuff, you wouldn't, don't need any of this. If you were to cut all of that mm. out, it would make very little difference, other than the fact you've got to explain somehow how he's the father of. of yeah. Him. All you so need to know is. Oh, he's, he's got a wife, and she's kind of yeah. scared of him. Yeah, it's just completely fatuous, and it, and it adds nothing at all to well, it. It adds one thing. Every time it, in, in Lucas's yeah. mind, this catered for the female demographic. He was like, how do we get women in to see Star Wars? Put Romeo and Juliet in there. That's what girls like. Do you think so? I, I, I get the impression this is another one on the tick sheet. So he's looked at Empire Strikes Back and put, hmm, romantic subplot. We'll put one in here as well. Uh, it's more than that. Different. Seriously, the amount of really? slop he puts in there. He knows boys don't like that shit. Boys like the bit at the end with the yeah. fighting. He puts the, the the romance in there for the. He basically he was so influenced. By, it's how could I not think of it? It's Titanic. He puts the big action bit at the end, and he puts the romance in there. The sort of like, well, this is what girls like. And and he was there's actually footage of him saying, well, you know, we're never going to beat Titanic. It's just too big. Refer when they're making the Phantom Menace. Um, so obviously he was like, well, I'm going to fucking make Titanic this time. I'll put in a crappy romance. That's what you girls like, isn't it? And honestly, the, the romance bit in Titanic's rubbish, but it's nowhere near as bad as this. Uh, and I the action know, in Titanic is so much better than the action in this. I can't argue with that. I was just thinking though, in Titanic, you do have the cheesy scene of the hand on the steamy window, which is almost as... Well, no, actually, no. No, Zan's right. The fruit bits. <laughs> fruit, there the is no bit, bit is in Titanic that is worse than the worst bit in Attack of the Clowns. <laughs> Whichever your well, worst I, bit is. Well, I'm not sure about that, but yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Depends. I, I actually think I really quite like Titanic. I mean, like I said, it's a I film like of two halves. So. Um, <laughs> quite literally. Yeah. Okay, right. I got a question for you, gentlemen. Uh-oh. Who the fuck is Sifo-Dyas? Thank you. This is the one thing I was wanting to mention. So we have this mystery plot all the way through the movie, right? right? Yep. And so eventually we get to Kamino and we find out about the clone army. Then they mention this Jedi that is never ever <laughs> fucking mentioned. Sifo-Dyas. Apparently he died ten years ago, so he died round about the time of ever. Episode Without One. That's a menace. So. This mysterious Jedi that we've never seen, never heard of, commissions a clone army that the Jedi Council, no one goes, 
Where have you been for the past four hours? <laughs> uh, nowhere, nowhere. I wasn't on a clone planet. Uh, I haven't just been down to the library and erased it from the archives. We never really get an explanation of who this Cypher Deus was, why he commissioned the clone army. So my only thought is, was this Cypher Deus some sort of failed apprentice of Palpatine, maybe? Right, the official canon story goes thus. Cyphodius was an ex-Jedi and mate of Count Dooku. Just before The Phantom Menace, he foresaw, using his special mind powers, the huge civil war between the droid and clone armies that would occur ten years hence. In response, he journeyed to the cloners on Kamino and asked them to build an army of over one million clone troopers to serve the Republic. The Kaminoans said, sure. And seemingly, without asking for the literally trillions of Republic credits that such an operation would cost for the cloning process, materials, parts and labour, ten years worth of staff hours, training, hardware, armour and starships, and crucially, without ever double-checking with the Senate, in case this was just a single bonkers paranoid ex-Jedi who in no way spoke for the rest of the hundreds of thousands of planets in the Republic, proceeded to do exactly that. Meanwhile, Dooku mentioned Sifo's actions to Darth Sidious, who didn't at that point know about it. But he thought, jolly good opportunity to get an army behind me. He got Dooku to murder Sifo and take control of the project himself. But in reality, when George Lucas wrote the screenplay, Sifo Dias was actually named Sido Dias. And was, as most of us expected at the time, just a really badly hidden codename for Sidious. And when I say bad, I mean bad like Montgomery Burns in a fake moustache standing up and saying, Hello, my name is Mr. Snrub, and I come from some place far away. Yes, that will do. Anyway, I I say we invest that money back in the nuclear plant. I like the way Snrub thinks. It's the worst disguise in the history of the universe. But that's not the worst part. Lucas made a typo and referred to the character as Sifo-Dyas instead of Sido-Dyas once because the F and the D are placed beside one another in a QWERTY keyboard. And from that, a completely different character with far less motivation to build an army was born. A character with no backstory, no screen time, no explanation beyond our own suspicions, and absolutely no payoff. Master Sifo-Dyas, whom Obi-Wan gets mistaken for, is the product of a finger slip coupled with a confusion about one's own story. Incidentally, one of the Kaminoans chosen to represent their race for the Senate was named Hallie Bertoni. Once again, Lucas is just brimming over with master disguises and wordplay. Halliburton is the world's second largest oil field services corporation. Halliburtoni from the man who bought you Newt Gunray and Enron wanna fuck you over. <laughs> it's actually kind of funny because I was going to mention this later on because when we uh, meet the separatist movement in this movie, you have obviously Newt Gunray, but you have, what is it, the banking, the banking clan. clan. <laughs> and what was it? The, tech the techno-union people. army. The techno-union. The worst part is that once the army is revealed, everybody just says, oh, thank the force these guys were here to save the day and can now protect the Republic. And hey, just in the nick of time, since Chancellor Palpatine just stated his plans to raise the army yesterday, nobody asks why they were there already. The Jedi are the police of the Star Wars galaxy. But not one of them, even the almighty wise Yoda, ever stops to ask the most basic fundamental question in a mystery crime. Who benefits? Who is walking away from this shadowy scenario, smelling of roses with a great big fat army in his back pocket, and executive power? Senator Palpatine has a guilty sign around his neck a mile wide, and yet it takes three years for the Jedi to send in a small party to apprehend him. Instead, they pledge their forces to the army of the Republic and spend nearly a thousand days destroying droids. 
See, it's all that lack of sex. They needed to go out and cause some <laughs> Crack some heads. Are they the police? Who are the cops in Star Wars if not these guys? I don't think there is any because uh, – and the strange it's thing li- is if they're, they're meant to be police, the moment the clone army turns up, they all suddenly turn into generals. General Yoda and General Mace Windu. Oh, speaking of generals, Jar Jar was made a general for episode one. It's like, Misa, make you bombard general. Would you make Coco the Clown your general? Of course he's going to run around being chased by blue balls. Can I just mention this? Because I I don't think I mentioned this last week on the episode one discussion about the battle and that. Why were they fighting on the Windows desktop? Two forces are effectively at work here on the story. The first is Lucas's initial approach to script writing on Star Wars in the first three films, where he asks you to accept these crazy new exotic desert worlds, the evil empire, the heroic rebels, etc. You were never really told why, and it was a relatively simple story. It propelled itself through three films and stayed with a small group of close friends. And that approach works fine when you're heading towards conclusion. But when you're heading towards a beginning and you take it upon yourself to try to explain how and why things are... You achieve the exact opposite. The story gets bogged down in minutiae and events that must happen, not because they propel the story forward, but because they wind in to the beginning of A New Hope. Hence, it just becomes a collection of scenes where a lot of stuff goes on, but nothing really happens. This leads me to another force at work, that of fate. Anakin and Amidala are flung together and get married because they have to, not because it makes sense. In all actuality, considering what they go through and how little chemistry the two characters have, Amidala should not, in all rationality, want to have anything to do with Anakin. But they have to. Anakin leaves his mother because he has to. Qui-Gon dies at the end of episode one because he has to. Obi-Wan trains Anakin because he has to. None of these events are ever really sold to us. Anything other than items on a trundling conveyor belt of destiny where we're sat watching with slack jaws and zero engagement. Because the love story is ordained by fate, there isn't really any reason required for Amidala to effectively surrender to Anakin's wheedling, occasionally rapey advances. He's clearly obsessed with her, as obsessed as he was with getting away from Tatooine as a boy, and remains obsessed with being the most powerful Jedi ever. There's no real love in him, or her. It's that best of proximity infatuation made sharper by stress and fear, not something anybody can really get behind, and not even a whisper as compelling as the romance between Han and Leia. Your thoughts, gentlemen? I'm preoccupied with thinking about the marriage now. <laughs> the marriage, in essence, really doesn't make any sense. Well, hold on. It, it might do if he's knocked her up. <laughs> we have to, we have to. Otherwise, it'll cause even more of a scandal. Well, she, but, yeah, she might have insisted on that. But oh, no, no, he hasn't knocked her up because it's three years before... Ah, um, uh, well, so yeah. Three. Okay. Nope, didn't uh, well, that one It out. makes it seem like it. He shot it in a way that makes it, he's like, there's lingering sort of views of him sort of touching her stomach almost. And you're like, ooh, you're going to have a baby. And again, that's stuff for the girls in Lucas's mind, as if boys don't like that sort of thing too. I think I've come to a conclusion. Padme is just as fucked up as Anakin. There's yeah. no other explanation. Yeah. 
But we never get to yeah, see that. You... There's a bit at the beginning where after um, Corday dies, she's like, she's traumatized and she stands up and Captain Typho, whatever his name is, goes, come on, let's go. And she sort of lingers for a while longer. And you're like, that's actually really messed her up because she's effectively looking at her own corpse. But he never goes into that. That should have traumatised her. That can't be the first decoy that's died for her either. Well, no, there's the whole point of having a decoy is the fact that they are there to die for you. Mm. Effectively, you're just seeing um, yourself, but, you know, but for the grace of the force, there goes I. And you're like, I could have been dead there, for God's sake. And he never goes into that. That's so interesting. That's why he doesn't go into that. I don't think he knows how to. The whole point is, if they had sort of written her as just as messed up as Anakin, it might have made a bit more sense. You can understand that some women would respond to Anakin in that way. You can understand, like, like women who had really low self-esteem or, you know, saw him as a bad boy and wanted to change him or were self-loathing would want to be with him. But not a rational, strong, d- defensive woman who wants the best for her people. No. I was going to say pity sex, then. <laughs> pity marriage. Have we ever heard of pity marriage? I'm sure it exists. But not yeah, from people yeah. like Amidala. She's too strong. Or apparently, as is written as strong. Well, even Actually, she's sense. physically strong, too. She one hands a, a blaster rifle, which should clearly be shot with two hands. Good point. <laughs> I didn't pick up on that one, actually. No, the whole thing just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. You know, no matter how you look at it, it's, it's, just, it's just wrong, you know. And we talked about in the last one how... Uh, her relationship with him was maternal, mm, you know, mm. and it, it, she kind of goes from maternal to big sister to lover. I mean, it, I mean, how incestuous do you need to get? I mean, it's it's just weird and uncomfortable and horrible. And yeah, don't I don't want to think about it. I don't much. want to think about it anymore. No. I think it's time for a Bail Organa update. Okay, now Bail Organa is in this movie at last, and after some research into Bail Antilles, who, as we mentioned last week, was mentioned in The Phantom Menace and was probably supposed to be Bail Organa, I can now say that it's even more complicated than that. Uh? (laughs) Bail Antilles was mentioned as being Leia's father in one of the early drafts of the script and also the Marvel Comics adaptation of A New Hope, then known only as Star Wars in 1977. After that, he was renamed Bail Organa for the novelization and all subsequent books and comics. Clearly, there was still some confusion during episode one, and it wasn't until Jimmy Smith was cast as Bail Organa for episode two and his scenes had been filmed that they became two separate characters. Bail Antilles was an old Iranian senator as well, and no relation to either Captain Antilles from episode three, as mentioned in episode four, or Wedge Antilles. Here's a tip, George. Stop giving everybody from Alderaan the same fucking name. Blows my Brilliant. mind, because I thought I understood all that. I thought Jimmy Smith was was going to be Bail Antilles. And, Maybe no, Bail was Bail his middle name. No, his middle name is Prestorb. From a, an earlier comic, someone referred to him as Prestor, and then they changed that to his middle name. Who was Leia's adopted family? Bail Organa. Jimmy no, Smith. Jimmy no, Smith. no, that is Jimmy Smith. That, that is Jimmy Bail Smith. Antilles didn't do shit in anything. He doesn't exist. He was a he, typo. He is a typo. He only exists right. because people who were making comics were like, we need another cat dude from uh, the Senate. Oh, we kind of created this character inadvertently from typos, so you can have him. There's a picture of Bail Organa standing next to Bail Antilles, but it's kind of a mock-up. Okay, I'm happy now. I'm back inside my Star Wars comfort zone okay. now. I was, at a moment, for a moment there, I was completely lost. We need to give away diagrams with this show at this rate. Right fans, it's the Genosian Separatist Hot Pod Summer Championship. Championship. Take it to the Genosian Arena this Saturday and Sunday. 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 
thousand credit battle for the Monster Beast Challenge Series. Just five credits. Accolade. Right, this next section is simply called Django Gets Punked. <laughs> Continuing a popular theme in Star Wars, started by Boba Fett in Jedi and continued by Darth Maul in Phantom, Django goes down like an utter bitch in this episode. Picture the scene. An arena full of Jedi surrounded by super battle droids, a hundred lightsabers deflecting a thousand blaster bolts, and just for fun, a great big praying mantis and a giant rhino charging about the place. It's basically a shark tank full of ninjas that's been filled with gasoline and set on fire. So his boss, Darth Tyrannus, tells him to deal with the toughest Jedi in the pit, Mace Windu, a man whom, due to your underground sources as Jango Fett, you're reliably informed is a bad motherfucker. It's a risk assessment nightmare. Now, you're not Bob the Goon in Tim Burton's Batman. You're not the unflaggingly loyal Darth Maul. You're not even a particularly tough stormtrooper. You're a bounty hunter, most interested in surviving, making a decent wage, and looking after your son. There is not a man alive with all his marbles who would decide to jump into the middle of that arena and attack Mace Windu with blasters, a weapon notorious for being ineffective against Jedi. That's not even what kills him. He gets clobbered by the reek and his rocket pack malfunctions so that when he needs to get a high ground vantage point, again, not especially useful against the super jumpy Jedi, his pack misfires, and Django gets unceremoniously decapitated. Now, I'm sure Django had hunted Jedi in his time, and been able to take one out despite his non-force-using handicap by catching them off guard in a very controlled situation, with all the traps and secret weapons that the Fets are famous for. But even if he had somehow taken down Windu, what exactly was his plan then? He'd have 99 extremely pissed off Jedi on his tail and an arena full of blaster bolts. Even just flying off is fraught with danger in an uncontrolled and chaotic environment. That sort of thing might happen to a greenhorn bounty hunter who's got himself way in over his head, but not the toughest Mandalorian in the galaxy. It's a dreadful disservice to the character and a horrible mirror to the way Boba gets taken out in Jedi. But when you consider how many times more dangerous the situation that Django jumped into was than Boba, it's clearly far, far worse. In short, jumping into that arena makes Fett stupider than a barrel full of retarded Hitlers. Well, I suppose he was full of false confidence, because he did sort of kick the crap out of Obi-Wan, sort of. But he did lose his lightsaber, so... Yeah, and also he didn't kill him. He wasn't able yeah. to. One Jedi in a controlled environment, well, relatively... That whole scene where he gets decapitated doesn't work anyway because, you know, Mace Windu comes at him with all the pace and athleticism of a 60-year-old <laughs> You know, he's, it, he does. Everything's so slow. You know, it, it reminds me of, you know, I want to remember the, the game Barbarian on the Spectrum, you know, where you, you press back twice to do a to do a, a, a sort of swinging hack to try and take the head off. You know, it, it, it's so slow. You know, anyone could just step out of the way. It just made no sense whatsoever. Mm. But I have, if I have one, you know, one serious problem with all of these, um, these uh, the prequels, it's the way in which they treat the backstory to Boba Fett, mm-hmm. because Boba Fett, the, the, the power behind that original character, and it's the, you know, for a lot of people, it's the, their favourite character in all the Star Wars mm-hmm. films. It was mine, still is. Even despite like, his ending in Jedi. Even despite his ending in Jedi, yeah. Expanded universe spoilers? He's not, he's not dead. dead. Yes, I know, but we only okay. care about the regular films in this one. Sure. Okay. But, 
But he's he's a bounty hunter. You're not supposed to know anything about him. He's supposed to live on the edge. You know, he's he's a underhand. He's on the edge, chief. He, well, he, he is. You know, all these bounty hunters basically they drift from one place to another, doing jobs for people, basically. Mm. So you know, he doesn't need a backstory. He doesn't, and certainly he doesn't. His his body or his genes do not need to be the the template for the entire stormtrooper army. I mean, that, that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Well, originally Lucas did kind of make uh, parallels with Boba Fett and the stormtroopers, and he was going to try and weave that in somehow, but he couldn't. So I felt like this was going to be coming. Oh, I mean, yeah, okay. So I just, for me, it just didn't need that. I mean, they could have made the clone from anyone. Why they would need to choose this particular bounty hunter and and you know and then to set up the fact that his you know his son and his son sees him dying it's just so clumsy and predictable you know it's it's just not in keeping with the character that you see in empire they're going to go for hyper realism as well when when boba picks up his helmet and holds it to his forehead jango's head should have plopped out <laughs> i was going to say that <laughs> where's his head in it <laughs> Um, I actually really liked, to, to go back a little bit, the Obi-Wan Django fight, because it actually takes Obi's lightsaber away, and he actually, it's really quite physical, and they're punching each other, and, like, you know, it's 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 much more visceral and interesting, and, and it's, it's fast, as opposed to uh, Mace Windu. It's it's really, you know, it goes, and um, it's a very yeah, welcome bit of action in the middle of that very it's action. It's the point I was illustrating, point I was illustrating earlier, is that all the bits with uh, Obi, Obi-Wan in it are really good, mm-hmm. you know. There's that scene. There's the, the you know the um, the flight through the asteroid field is really good. You know the I love the way they got the um, well, the seismic charges were awesome. That- the one love the way that the um, the, the the blasters on Slave One are just pounding his hmm. ship. Because that's what space combat would be. You know, you'd just be like, okay, he's in front of me. I'm just going to pump all this shit out of it until it blows up. You know, that was really, really... Well, he must have some fucking good shields then, because it hits him about a million times, or just doesn't hit him. Yeah, I think the idea is he's supposed to be do- using his force. To oh, his force, fly yes. <laughs> yes, he doesn't... That's like basically like saying a wizard did it, for every time a Jedi does something interesting. <laughs> that's the idea, isn't it? <laughs> okay. But, I mean, don't, don't, all those scenes are very cool. You know, they, they make the film. So we've got to the fact we have a fight between Fett and Obi-Wan. Mm-hmm. And unlike, you know how last week we talked about, they felt like there was nothing, no emotion mm. to that fight. That fight actually did have some. There was almost a sense of desperation in that fight for Obi-Wan. Mm. It, it actually carried through. There was emotion in that one. And later on, there's emotion in the lightsaber, a bit of emotion in the lightsaber fight between Obi, Anakin and Dooku. Uh, more so in the bits with Anakin and uh, Dooku, where it's like Anakin going, yeah, all right, now I'm going to kick your ass, and Dooku just being like, yeah, right, poof, like you're off. But it actually felt like these fights, some of these fights had emotion. But the best one of the lot is the one between Obi-Wan and Fett, because there's that sense of desperation, mm. of needing Urgency. to get him to get answers. Yeah. If the whole film had had that pace to it, it would have been great. So what do we think of CGI Yoda in Episode 2 as opposed to Puppet Yoda in Episodes 5, 6, and 1? Can we have the puppet back? <laughs> no. In fact, quite the opposite. When the next cuts of Star Wars come out, the 3D ones, they're probably going to superimpose the CGI Yoda over the puppet. The fact was, we were all looking forward to the Yoda fight. Let's face it, we've all heard Yoda is one of the he's the, the Jedi. He's a great master. And there he is, and he pulls the lightsaber out, and he becomes a green blur of whirling greenness. 
when I when I saw it at the cinema, I don't know if you guys had the same experience, mm-hmm. but everyone in the cinema stood up and cheered when that happened. Whooping. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a Which, classic uh, case of give them what they want. Yeah. Yes. I, except me, I kind of sat there stone-faced. It's like, ah, okay. Um, I mean, to be honest with you, I'm not a fan of the Yoda character in any of the films, so I don't really have any kind of emotional attachment to whether he's a puppet, whether he's a CGI character. Wow. You don't like Yoda? Not really, no. What are you doing on this podcast? Because <laughs> <laughs> he's bitter and twisted like the rest of us. I already said to you, I like... He's more machine like, uh, now than man. I like uh, Boba Fett, so it should give you an idea of the stuff I like and the stuff I don't. Fair enough. I mean, Somebody, the, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, as a kid, you wanted to be a Jedi, not me. You wanted to be a Boba Fett. I, I wanted a kick-ass gun and just blow things to shit. <laughs> I was prancing around with a bloody sword. I'm sure by the end of these reviews, we're going to hear son just go, What if he doesn't survive? He's worth a lot to me. Okay, regarding Yoda, I actually think they did a good job. The subtleties and nuances in his face make for a great emoting. It's not quite Gollum, but if you were a brand new character, he almost would be. It's just the piece of our brain saying this looks wrong that stops the illusion from completing. Yoda seems like he should have a less mobile, more rubbery face. What separates it from the original trilogy in a negative way is that in Empire and Jedi, Yoda only had Luke to interact with, and Mark Hamill sold that puppet better than any man alive, God bless him, with deadly seriousness, even when Yoda was goofing around. Yoda was also instrumental to providing Luke with vital training and knowledge, as well as fleshing out the use and nature of the Force for us, the viewers. Everyone who talks to Yoda in the prequels acts, while respectfully, like they're chin-wagging with that guy all the time. He rarely tells them anything impactful, and thus he himself has little impact on the story. It's not really until episode 3 that he actually gets to do anything, aside from say what a bad feeling he has about all this. And then there's the saber duel between Obi, Anakin, and Tyrannus. Do we like that? Well, I do, because, you know, I can't watch enough of Chris Lee. You know, he's, he's, he's one of my all-time movie heroes, and he actually... um the way he carries the sword, the way he carries himself, is wholly believable. You know, it's like he's in a an old Hammer House of Horror or Fu Manchu movie. You know, he 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 just he just looks right in all of those scenes. I think. Well, you know, he's had, he has a lot of experience playing the villain. Let's face it. The thing about that is when you look at how he fights, because obviously Christopher Lee in ages quite old and cannot do the choreographed movements that say uh Ewan McGregor can or Hayden Christensen can they go back to almost the old style of fighting that you saw in episodes four five and six and it which feels is, like a duel with him that's which what it should, be. should do yeah it's yeah, exactly it well you know I'm, I'm sure again Chris Lee I'm sure probably turn around to him and say well no that's not what you do with a sword because he's the kind of guy that knows that sort of thing you know he, he's, he's well read it was one of those happy coincidences because he could not do the Fast and Furious movements that we saw in episode one, we get back to an old school lightsaber duel, which we actually care about. And, I mean, he basically punks Anakin straight away with the Force Lightning. Again, this is sort of uh, taken for granted things that happen off screen, but I would imagine, surely after beating Maul, you know, just barely, um, that it would occur to Obi-Wan that there are probably going to be some more Sith Lords later on down the line, and he would spend ten years training with Anakin to fight one or two Sith Lords, and yet they get punked so quickly, way too easily. I mean, especially Obi-Wan, he goes down way too quickly. We're supposed to assume, though, that the Jedi have become complacent, aren't we? That's the kind of premise throughout the entire film. Including Obi? I mean, he's the only one who actually met and faced and survived a Sith Lord. It just didn't scan for me. It's like that that Obi-Wan... 
wouldn't be like, oh, well, at least he's dead. I guess there won't be any more fighting to do in the future. I better learn to... I mean, there's actually various different um, styles of saber combat, and one of them is just basically blocking blaster bolt fire, and that's what most of the Jedi were ch- uh, trained in, which is why the Sith are able to walk all over them. Except that isn't Obi-Wan meant to be a master in one of the other... Arms? Yeah, he is, which doesn't explain why he gets so easily kicked by Tyrannus. Unless he wasn't a master at that yeah, point. Surely you could do better. And the funny thing is, I have to think, you know, Yoda had a chance to really win this fight, because um, the reason why the fight sort of stops is uh, Dooku pulls down the big, huge piece of scenery mm. to drop on Anakin and Obi-Wan, and Yoda just sort of pushes it away. Well, instead of pushing it away, why not throw it at the ship? Yeah. To run onto. Ah, ah, thank you, Dooku. Bang. Ah, dead. Or with one hand hold it, and then with the other hand just knock Dooku's legs out from under him. He's an old guy. It's going to hurt when he falls. Oh, but I'll let him off that, because that is a cool ship. I love that ship with the solar sail. That's superb. We're in the future. Why is a solar sail ship, you know, can get away from a war so easily? Because it's efficient. <laughs> <laughs> So basically, you're saying Dooku had the Toyota Prius in the Star Wars episode? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's, there's no reason why you could, you know, a solar cell would be just as efficient as like a, you know, some kind of thrust. You know, if, if not more so, it could potentially be faster. So, I mean, it doesn't explain how he does the, uh, uh, you know, how he engages his warp drive. I mean, that's, that doesn't make any sense because he wouldn't be able to warp space with a solar cell hyperdrive. Sorry, <laughs> yeah, think of Star Trek. <laughs> But, you know, it doesn't explain how we'd be able to bend space with a solar cell, but certainly a solar cell would, would propel you at a phenomenal pace. You know? So, I, th- I, I love that. I think it's really cool. It's quite a neat touch. Obviously, they just thought, I oh, know, what would be really cool to put in? I know, we've not done a solar cell yet. Obviously, he watched an episode of Deep Space Nine. <laughs> yeah, just the there's one. Been uh, of fiction with solar cells in. Back in A New Hope, an aged Ben Kenobi tells Luke his father was a good friend and a cunning warrior. Now, what we're seeing here is a bickering pair of ineffectual fighters constantly vying with one another for a meaningless upper hand. I'll be talking more about Obi-Wan and Anakin for Revenge of the Sith, but right here they seem to genuinely dislike one another. And in fact, Obi-Wan seems to have lost the skill of his youth. It suffers more than The Phantom Menace, because while there's a bit more going on in Episode 2's duel, the key conflict between Obi and Annie is minimised for flashy dual wielding and spinning about the place. Stunt coordinator Nick Gillard describes the sabre fighting in the prequels as a game of chess played at high speed with every move ending in check. Because the Jedi have the force, they can see where every blow is going to strike and counter accordingly with little emotion or physical struggle. And this fight in particular is like watching two young men play an old man at chess. And everything that that implies... Kind of makes lightsabers obsolete, doesn't it? If they can always see which you, th- you know each of them, each other's yeah. doing. Well, I just use fucking blasters. Yeah. <laughs> but let's face it, this is all just a stage being set for the Yoda fights. The most obvious from the "Wouldn't it be cool if" school of thought that most ten-year-old Star Wars fans, with no understanding of symbolism or narrative, and indeed their intellectual equal George Lucas, share. Now made completely obsolete by the Palpatine fight in Revenge of the Sith, Yoda vs. Dooku is just a tech demo that puts a previously immobile and reserved character at the opposite end of the spectrum. There's no reasoning behind it, there's no explanation for why, and frankly there's no call for it. It's entertaining, but all it does is further try to peddle you the notion that Christopher Lee's Tyrannus is as powerful as any Jedi, both physically and spiritually. This would be fine if we'd spent time with the guy. But really, we only get to meet him at the very end here, and he's dead by the beginning of the third one. We have no real understanding of his motivation, and we don't really want to see him go down that hard. We want to see more of him, effectively. He's just there as an inevitable opposition. Tyrannus wins by default in the end and escapes once again because he had to. 
I mean, wouldn't it have been better if they didn't have the Yoda fight in this movie and our first Yoda yeah. fight was the Palpatine yeah, fight? That, yeah, totally. I just And you could have built that into the story as in somehow Anakin loses the fight to Dooku, which pushes Anakin more into wanting going, I'm not powerful enough, I need more power, driving him into that more power, more frame of mind that leads him into being the Sith. Mm, yeah, yeah, actually I'll buy that. I, I'm, I'm fine with Tyrannus being in there. I, I want more of him, frankly. I mean, I love Christopher Lee as well. He's Saruman. He's awesome. He just comes on the screen. Well, the moment he walks in and he's on screen, you're like, ooh, hello. And he just like, just, just, I don't want to say he hams it up because he doesn't, but he just chews the scenery with such grace when he's just being that evil. Mm. It's it's effortless for him. He's just like, I've done this a million times before. Just trust me on this one. Possibly the most obvious problem with Attack of the Clones is that it shouldn't have really been made into a film. Everything significant that happens in it is backstory to the more important events of Revenge of the Sith, which should have been the second movie in this arc. And while George and crew may try in vain to dress this up like Empire, it doesn't have the darkness or the despair that is required of that crucial second act. If the fall of Anakin had occurred in film two... There would have been a lot more room in the third movie to flesh out the hunting down of the Jedi, with the eventual victory and light at the end of the tunnel being the survival of the Skywalker twins. The final irony is that this movie's crux point is centred around a Senate granting Chancellor Palpatine emergency executive powers and the ruination of the status quo that comes as a result. One man given the power over every factor in the overall situation leads to a singularity of vision that can't possibly make everybody happy. It's a fascist dictatorship with everybody too afraid to challenge the might of this supreme being who has the power of life and death over everyone. There has to be a level of communication and give and take and the utilising of strengths to make a system work because individuals often have weaknesses that they cannot see that when not addressed and not balanced by the strengths of others signify devastating consequences. Written, directed and produced by George Lucas. That'll be all from us this week. More next week on episode three. Thank you, gentlemen, once again for coming on. I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Neil Taylor. I've been Gary Zantiriat Blower. We'll see you next week. May the force be with you.